Good morning again. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We are continuing this Sunday in the book of Psalms. So every summer we go back to the Psalms. I say every summer. This is our second summer as a church, so don't mean to make it sound more grand than it is. But in the summer times we go back to the book of Psalms, and I gave some rationale for that last week. And we started with Psalm 12 last week, which means for all the math majors, we are on to Psalm 13 this morning. Now, as I mentioned last week, the book of Psalms is a collection of five smaller books. You can see this as you read through. It'll say book one, book two, so on and so forth. And most of the first two books are Psalms written by David, King David, the king of Israel. And as we read through these, as I mentioned last week, we can oftentimes see connections to different events or circumstances that are going on in the life of David, in his kingdom, which then give way to this writing of these psalms, whether it be rejoicing or lament or suffering or crying to God or whatever it might be. This is the case many times, and with Psalm 13, there is no direct or specific connection. We can read it, and we can make speculation and say, well, it might fit here or there, but this is a psalm of lament. A psalm of David expressing frustration because he is stuck in this holding pattern as he waits for God to do what God has promised to do. And I think this is very applicable for us because oftentimes we find ourselves waiting. Now that might be a result of poor planning on our part. Maybe we didn't have all the information But so often, I I just know I myself find myself in this time of somewhat uncertainty, perhaps. What am I doing? What's going on? I don't know if everyone else has that experience. But as we read this psalm together, I'm hoping to show you that there's something much more than just David's discontentedness going on here. This is not a gripe session by David. This is not just him being impatient There's something more at stake when he's calling out to God and saying, why are you being silent right now? There's something huge in that statement, and I I just was so encouraged by this, and I'm excited to share it with you this week. So I invite you to open your Bibles as we begin right to the middle of your Bible approximately and turn to Psalm chapter 13. We'll read this together, and we'll pray, and we'll begin looking at these verses. Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider, answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together as we begin. Father in heaven, we come once again as needy people. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in this Sunday morning, we all have need. And sometimes those needs are accentuated by our circumstances or our 
decisions, but all of us have one great need. We just, we just sang about this. We need the stilling of our soul. We need peace with you. We need sin forgiven, guilt gone, righteousness restored. That's a pretty hopeless spot to be in apart from your son, Jesus Christ. So God, we come to this text today having a need and praying that you would fulfill all of your promises to your people. As we come and we look at the example David leaves us in times of wondering and times of waiting, we see his confidence in your ability to do what you've promised to do. I pray, Father, that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would encourage our hearts. No matter what we find ourselves waiting for this morning, no matter where you have us in our journey through life, I pray that you would meet us here now. And for those of us who have still the need of forgiveness of sin, of restoration, healing, would you do that this morning? There's no better place for someone to be who needs forgiveness than right here. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd come and work in this congregation this morning. Give us eyes to see what is in your word and encourage us through your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned last week that as we go through these psalms, I want to give you a summary of each one of them. And then as we move through, I'm hoping you can see where that summary is coming from. So my summary, my thesis for Psalm 13 this morning is this. God will at times cause us to wait in sorrow and darkness in order to magnify his love and his salvation. God will at times cause us to wait in darkness and in sorrow in order to magnify his love and his salvation. Now just a couple structural things about this psalm before we jump into it. You'll notice probably in your Bible that this psalm is divided into three two-verse sections. One and two, three and four, five and six. I think this is a good division. That's the division we're going to follow as we move through. And you'll also notice that there's a, there's a level of intensity that David has at the beginning and then it seems to kind of wane as he goes through. Okay, he's crying out in, almost in frustration at the beginning. How long are you going to leave me here? And then he seems to calm down a bit as he's praying. Consider me, look at me, O oh Lord, look at, look at what's going on. And by the end, he's worshiping. He is de-escalating the intensity with which he approaches this psalm. So we're going to do the same thing, not in intensity, but in structure. So let's look at these first two verses together and see David's expression of despair. David's expression of despair. Look again at verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Martin Luther, in commenting on this psalm, said, Hope despairs and yet despair hopes. Isn't that a good little phrase? And I think that's what's going on here in the first part of this psalm. The depth 
of David's emotion, the depth of his feeling, can be seen in this fourfold repetition of the phrase, how long? Or we might say, what are you waiting for? Right? David knows what God has promised to him. He knows the commitment, the covenant relationship that God has with his people. And it seems, at least from his perspective, that God has abandoned him. That's where all this language is coming from as we read through this. It is not a literal how long, as in like, okay, God, is this going to be one week, two weeks? How long am I going to have to sit in this until you get me out? It's a cry of desperation saying, I have been here. Nothing is changing. How long are you going to leave me here? He's not looking for a time stamp answer. He's expressing this frustration to God. And we get this sense that David feels a divine abandonment. Now we know this is just David's perspective. God does not turn his back on his people. But depending on how you are going through your circumstances, this is David's circumstance right now, he feels as if God has abandoned him. God appears to be silent when David cries out to him, which produces in him this, I think frustration is the right word. We talked last week about the Psalms giving us permission to express things, and they also give us a model for expression. When you don't know what to say, this is what's going on. David's been stuck in this cycle. He's crying out to God. Nothing seems to be changing. It feels like God has left him and like he's been abandoned. This is what he means by saying, will you forget me forever? Okay, or continually. Will you forget me continually? That would be another good translation of that word. Will you go on acting, God, like I don't exist? What's the deal? You, you getting that kind of flavor for what's going on? David feels as if God has removed his covenant blessing from his life. And I say it this way in terms of the covenant blessing because of what David says in the very next line. You see this when he says, this is verse 2, how, or verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? What's the deal with that? What does that mean? Well, in Israel, metaphorically, having the face of God turned towards you was a sign of blessing. In fact, this is what they prayed for at harvest season. This would be Psalm 67. Or back in Numbers chapter 6, this is what's known as the Aaronic blessing that Aaron, the high priest, would pronounce this blessing as he was commanded to by God. Listen to Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. This is probably very familiar to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, his face upon you and give you his peace. Having the face of God turns towards you is a figurative sign of his blessing. There's favor coming. And David, being in the situation he's in, feels as if the face of God is not towards him in blessing, but has turned away in abandonment. To have God turn his back on you is to leave you in the dark because the light radiates from the face of God, right? This is all figurative language, but you tracking with me? Right? May the Lord make his face shine upon you, illumine your way, give you direction, put blessing on you. So when David feels as if God's face is turned away, he is left in darkness. 
And you've probably experienced this before. When you feel alone, when you feel abandoned, it becomes much easier to take counsel from yourself rather than some external source. Because you feel like, this is, just, this is where I am. No one else is around. God's turned his back on me. And you start to listen to yourself and the, and the things that come up in your own mind. This is a situation we find here in this psalm. It becomes easier for David to listen to himself, to take counsel from his own heart, because he feels like God has abandoned himself. I know for me, and maybe this is true for you, I can easily convince myself of something in my own mind if I am not regularly and faithfully taking in the counsel of the word of God. And if you have lived any amount of life, you will have discovered that counsel from self is often faulty counsel. Not because we're all idiots, but because we're sinners and sin has permeated every single part of our our mind, our psychological, our physical, our emotional being. And when you look to yourself for counsel, David's saying, God, you've left me here. The only resource I have is myself and I know the limitations of that. And I hope you know the limitations of self-counsel. You might think, well, I have a lot of life experience. I've had decades of work and interacting with people, and I think I, you know, with enough thought, with enough work, with enough effort, I can figure things out. You can't. And I can't. It is folly to look internally for wisdom from yourself, apart from the work and the grace of God. Do you know why that is? Do you know why it's folly to look at yourself? It's the same reason that self-help books are a contradiction in the very name. (laughs) There's no help in ourselves. This is why the Psalms repeatedly talk about help coming from God, not coming from this internal source. We, as human beings, because of our sin condition, lack the necessary tools required to identify and fix the problems in the human condition. We don't have it. Apart from the grace of God, the best you can do is try to improve your circumstances, but it will not be lasting. Self-counsel is folly. Only God, through his word, his spirit, and his people. Really important triangle of things there. His word, his spirit, and his people can give us what we need to make wise decisions, to not lose heart, to not despair in these times. No, it's not to say you should never trust yourself. Okay? I'm, I'm not trying to say that if you make a decision without consulting 10 people that you should really question that decision. But this is a trust but verify situation. You ever heard that phrase? Trust but verify. Okay? The more that you are saturated with the word of God, the more that you are spending time in communion with God and with his people, God gives us wisdom. He puts his spirit in us. So that we can make decisions, that we can weigh a situation in a way that not only is helpful, but in a way that honors Him. So don't hear me say that you should never, ever follow what's in your heart. But I'm saying be very careful. Because your heart is deceitful. Your heart is sinful. And only the Spirit of God, working through His Word and through His people, will give us the counsel that we really need. We are not a self-help people. We are a God-helped people. There's, there's just not that much good inside of us, my friends. 
We need God so desperately. David knows this. He knows the futility of self-help. But when it seems like God has abandoned him, turned his face on him, he's in, he goes, this is, this is all I have. This is all I got. Is this where you want me, God? How long are you going to let me just look at myself? He's crying out in desperation. Going along with the theme from last Sunday from Psalm 12, David asks, how long will his enemy be exalted over him? If you remember from Psalm 12, it seemed like the wicked had risen all around David and the righteous were basically gone. And I think he's picking up on some of the same thing. David's enemies, it seems, are being lifted up. That's what the word exalted means. Lifted up to a place of honor even, which is an insult and a slight to David. So in his despair, he gives us this expression and cries out to God. Move with me now to verses 3 and 4. We can see David's expression of prayer to God. David's expression of prayer to God. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. In prayer now, David asks the Lord to turn his face back towards him. Return. Look again with favor and blessing upon me. That word consider at the beginning of verse 3 could also be translated look at me. Okay, so you see the similarity of language where it seems like God's face has been turned from David's perspective and now he's saying turn back. Look at me. Consider my plight. Consider my situation, God, and hear me. It's a feeling that's prompted by David's sense of abandonment from God. He is asking God to turn towards him, to shine the light of his face towards him, lest the sleep of death overtake him. Now, this is a section that I spent a good amount of time on because this is so interesting. And when I was considering, okay, David seems to be saying, God, rescue my life, save me, do what you've promised to do, because if you don't, I'm going to die. Now, the word death can mean Actual dying, of course. It can also mean stumbling or having your feet slip. But I think in this context, David is referring to actual literal death. And I'll tell you why. Because it seems like he's saying, if I die, my enemies are going to say, we won. Now, why would David care so much about that? I mean, at that point, he's not here. He's died. So why is he so concerned that if he comes to an untimely death that the enemies around him will say, see, we outlasted him. We won. We have the upper hand, using the language of the text, lest they say, I have prevailed over him. Why is that such a big deal? Why is he so exercised about this? This is where I just was very much helped by a couple other passages that I just happened to come across. (laughs) There's no circumstance in the Christian life, but... It was so good. I think that David is concerned not just for his own uh, reputation. You know, you can say, well, maybe he just wants to kind of uphold the, the office. He's king. You know, maybe he wants to just make sure that that's not fouled up. I don't think so. I don't think he's concerned at all about his own reputation. I think what his main concern is the reputation of God. And let me tell you why I think that. 
I think David is concerned about his death, not because of uh, any thinking about preserving his own line, his own reputation, his own name, but if David is who he is, meaning if he is not only the anointed king, the chosen one, a man after God's own heart, if he is a representative of God's, I mean, he's made it very clear, even this far in the Psalms, which are not always chronological, but as we've gone through, we've seen that David has very publicly made the Lord his strength, made the Lord his refuge, made the Lord his hope, trusted in him. God is my shield and my buckler, my fortress, my defense. So if David goes down, the men, the evil, the wicked around him will say, aha, your God is just as powerless as every other God. Look at David's dead. He's gone no God. That's a little different story, isn't it? That's a little bit more at stake than just David's own reputation. Let me share a couple texts with you. I think this will be really helpful. Psalm 30. You can flip a couple pages to the right or just listen as I read. Psalm 30, verses 8 and 10. David says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Do you see what he's saying? If I die, who is going to praise you? If I cease to exist, how are people going to know that you are my refuge, you are my rock, you are my fortress? David is not concerned with his own reputation here. He is not concerned with how people view him alone. He is concerned with the fame, the reputation, and the glory of God. Because David has made the Lord his strength. So if he fails, those around him will say, God failed. There's way more at stake in this than just David's own circumstance. Something very similar happened back in Israel's history. Numbers chapter 14. Israel is out of Egypt. God has rescued them, brought them through the Red Sea, and they do what they always do, and everything we do as well, complain, disbelief, they don't trust God, they're griping about their situation. I wish we were back in Egypt and blah, blah, blah. And God says, you know what? I've had it. I'm going to wipe this people out. And he tells Moses, it's coming. I'm not going to put up with this. And Moses as a type of Jesus Christ, right? Someone who stands between God and God's people, intercedes for the people of Israel. And as he comes to God and pleads the case for God not to destroy the people, what does he say? Do you think Moses comes to God and says, you know what, I know there's been a lot of mistakes going on here, but these are really, they're really good people. You know, they, they really are pretty decent. They just, it's been really hot and there's some sand in their sandals and it's just been a really unfortunate kind of, just give them a break. Is that what he says, do you think? No. Moses appeals to the very reputation of God in preserving this people. Listen to me read Numbers chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 13. But Moses says to the Lord, if you do this, if God wipes out the nation of Israel, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen 
face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give to them and he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord, and here he quotes from Exodus 34 when Moses is in the rock. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You hear that? God does not stand over his people in judgment. And Moses comes and says, oh, just they're really good people, just do that. Just just let it go, forget about it. Moses appeals to the value, the glory, the reputation of Almighty God. It's right there. If you do this, God, Egypt is going to hear about it, and they're going to say, hmm, I guess their God wasn't powerful enough to do anything about this. Did you know that God does everything he does for his own glory? Did you know that every time you have a prayer answered. Every time you have a circumstance that you see God work so clearly in your life, every time you receive a blessing from the Lord, it is not primarily about you or your worth. It's about God upholding his covenant promise to you. And in his faithfulness, he never breaks a promise. And I think this is what David is getting at in Psalm 13. If I die, my enemies will rejoice. And we say, who cares? Let them do whatever they want. They're your enemies anyway. No. David knows that he is wrapped up in his identity with the reputation of God. So he cries out to God in prayer and says, don't let me die. Don't let me go away because I so value your glory. I value your fame. I value your reputation. Don't let me sleep the sleep of death. And let my enemies rejoice over me. This is not the main point, but I want to say this anyways. I want you to know that you are valuable to God. You matter to God. He loves you. But you are not the main point of the universe. God is. And he values his glory and his reputation and brings us through sometimes really horrible things so that we see his love and his steadfast mercy in ways that we never would have seen had we not gone through that. It's all about the glory of God and I think David knows that. So we see this in his expression of prayer. Third and lastly, look at Psalm 13 verses five and six. See David's expression of hope and trust. Verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting things to me is as we come to these last verses and as we, as we see this almost shift in David's uh, feeling, his thinking, the way that he's responding to what's going on around him, As far as we know, nothing in David's situation has changed. 
right? There's, there's nothing explicit in the text that would lead us to say, oh, well, David was having a really hard time. I mean, things were really dark, but then, but then it all got better, and everything was great, and it brightened up, and then because of that, now he's worshiping, and he's praising, and he's singing to God. The same David who wrote verses 1 through 4 wrote verses 5 and 6 at the same time. And I think it's for our benefit and for our encouragement. David's trust in God, his worship of God, his confidence in the salvation of God is not only a result of his present circumstances. It is a result of what he knows to be true about God and he is banking on the past faithfulness of God to get him through the present situation. You see that? You can even see it in the tense of the words he uses, this in verse 5. But I have, past tense, trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall, now in the future, rejoice in your salvation. I want you to know this so badly. This is so important to understand because when you are in the middle of darkness and difficulty, and I'm not just talking about hangnails, I'm talking real life difficulty, death, illness, abandonment, divorce, children going wayward, all of the kind of spectrum of things we deal with. If you are of the mind that worship is primarily produced in your heart when things are good, you are missing the blessing of God. David's circumstance hasn't changed. He is still in this spot. And yet he says, I know the character of God. I know his faithfulness. I know what he has demonstrated to me in the past. And because of that, I praise him. Not because I got my way, not because everything turned around when I wanted it to turn around, but because the unbelievable faithfulness of God is demonstrated in every situation. What motivates praise in your heart? Look at verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What compels you to worship? Do you only offer praise to God when things are going the way you want them to go? Now don't get me wrong, we ought to praise God in those times. There is so much to be thankful for, isn't there? I mean, we could just sit for hours and talk about what God has done. I don't care what your situation is. But those are not the only times to praise and thank God. That's not realistic. If you have the idea that praise is produced only in times of sunshine, you're missing it. I think David leaves us a really good example of being in a dark place, a sticky place. He doesn't know how he's going to get out of it. But he says, you know what? I might not know how I'm going to get out, but I know my God. And I know his faithfulness to me. I know the promises that he's made to me, and I trust him. And I will trust him. This is an amazing psalm. And we need to be reminded that no matter what, no matter the circumstance, God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship. And he will do what he promised to do. At times he allows us to go through darkness, suffering, loss, depression, abandonment. But he has not left you. 
and he never will. It's good to worship God even when things are very hard. <clears throat> when Tiff and I had been married just a very short time, I don't even think it was a year, uh, some really good friends of ours, Jerry and Val Battis, I think some of you know them, lost their 18-year-old son in a car accident on his way back from college. And I was, we were at Riverside at the time and I was doing music and they asked me to do the music for the service and one of the songs that they requested that we play at his service was a Casting Crown song called Praise You in the Storm. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I think that song is a pretty good matchup to Psalm 13. I was just thinking back over this, uh, this week. But that's, that song talks about someone who's in a really dark time calling out to God and every time they pray and say amen, they, they get up and nothing's changed. Still in the circumstance, everything's the same. Just like David, crying out to God, how long are you going to leave me here? And eventually, the person in this song gets to the point where they praise the God who gives and the God who takes away. And the first line of this chorus says, I'll praise you in the storm and I will lift my hands for you are who you are no matter where I am. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that a rock that you can stand on in the midst of perceived loneliness, loss, abandonment, whatever? God has not left you. And he never will because he's a God of covenant-keeping love. God will at times cause us to wait in sorrow and in darkness in order to magnify his love and his salvation. Therefore, trust in his steadfast love. Rejoice in the strength that he gives you and trust him for answers. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, this is a heavy text. And the implications of this are huge for us as your children. It's very easy at times to give you thanks and to give you praise when things are great. But the reality of our life here on earth, Lord, is that there is sin everywhere and the effects of sin touch every part of our life. And so we are often put in circumstances where we just don't know what to do. Where we feel very acutely pain, hurt. And I ask for this people, for this congregation, that you give us the strength to trust you. Give us hope in your steadfast love. Sorrow may last for the night, but you have promised that joy will come. Give us the strength to believe your word. And I am so thankful, God, that you are a covenant-keeping God, that your faithfulness to your word does not depend upon our faithfulness, that even when we fail, when we sin, when we fall, you pick us up and you offer the forgiveness of sins through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. What an encouragement to know that not only our past sins dealt with, but your word is so clear that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. And that's exactly what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. The reminder that through Christ, all of the guilt and all of the weight and all of the pressure of our sin and our life can be forgiven and released. God, please strengthen us for the future. I know there are times coming that are going to be very difficult. And would you remind us of this text? Would you remind us of Psalm 13? That even though things appear to be dark, you have not left us and we can trust you. And just ask for the faith to trust you. Don't leave us to ourselves. Forced to look within our own heart for counsel. Let us trust in your word. We ask that you'd meet us there. So I praise you, Lord, and I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.